I never saw the last episode of Quantum Leap. You never saw I, I that is hard for me to believe. Well, I always caught it in syndication anyway. I mean, it it it's not something I've followed, but people I remember it being a big event. It's weird. It's sort of almost like the last episode of The Prisoner because it takes on this supernatural tone. Uh-huh. Like he jumps into this place like it's this bar and there's this proprietor of the bar. But basically you find out that that guy is God. Okay. Or the creator. The, the guy, the, 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 the bar, bartender. Guy at the bar? Yeah, the bar isn't really a really? bar. Yeah, it's like he's in this weird zone. And you find out through, he has this long conversation. It's very existential with this bartender and all these different people come in, people that he's known or ran into from different times and stuff. And But they don't know. It's all very kind of symbolic. Uh-huh. He's like, well, how how am I going to get back home? And, and the bartender guy said, you can always go back. You've always had the ability to go back. You've just never decided to. You've decided, like, subconsciously, you've wanted to go help people. You can stop that whenever you want. You can go back home. You've you've got the power. You just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And then the very end, he, like, leaps. And then the voiceover, you know, that kind of the the computer woman that talks like this. You know, (laughs) she comes in and she goes, Sam Beckett was never seen again. Oh. And it was like, what? So he didn't He didn't. (laughs) He never went back home. He just kept leaping through time to help people. Pretty good job, really. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Fraught with difficulties. Yeah, there's lots of difficulties. But I mean, no, he's doing he's doing good. Unlike Peasley, who's just freaking writing stuff down yeah. in a book. Or unlike us right now, which we're not even talking about what we so oh Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Five, And I'm Chris Lackey. We're at hppodcraft.com. And we didn't have an opening quote. We were actually, you caught us mid-conversation talking about Quantum Leap. But, Sorry uh, about that, guys. What do we have to say before we jump into the story? I well, guess? we've got we got some announcements. One announcement I am super excited about. Super uh-huh. excited about. <laughs> you know this, Chad. Our audience does not know this. Chad Pfeiffer is coming to England. He's coming right. to Northern England with his wife, Heather. This is going to be, this is crazy. Andrew Lehman is also coming to England at the same <laughs> he, time. Well, he, he he will have been in Sweden the week prior because yes. there's a Lovecraft event happening there. But we'll put links up to it on the show notes. Yeah. He's going to come in from Sweden, hang out with me for a while. Chad's going to show up, boom, and we are going to do a live show. That's right. A live show in Leeds. So if you are in Northern England or feel like traveling up to Northern England from anywhere in the world, we don't care. On April 4th, it's a Wednesday. It'll be a Wednesday evening. It's the only night that we can do this. We're going to have a live show with an audience. People will come and see it. We're going to have live music. We're going to have uh, readings. We're going to have all the stuff. And um, it'll be broadcast over the internet live as we're recording it. We'll also put it up later for people who listen to the show. Yeah, so if you if you aren't able to make it to Leeds for whatever reason, say you live in Alabama or something, you'll be able to watch it on the internet. Hear it, at least, uh, on the internet. Hopefully, if everything works out, we're going to have a live chat, too, so you can write stuff in and we'll interact with uh, the audience. That's so exciting. Yeah, I can't wait. So that's going to be April 4th, and it is a Wednesday night. The venue has yet to be locked down yet, but it, it's going to happen for sure, and we'll let you know next week where that's going to be and how you can get tickets and things like that. I got to find a great pair of pajamas. I'm, I'm going to look for like some kind of Boris Karloff black, you know, pajamas that he wore in The Raven or The Black Cat, one of those Bela Lugosi <laughs> movies that he made. Well, because I always do the show, I'm actually always in my pajamas when we do the show. Because oh, yeah. for you, it's the evening, but for yeah. me, it's Sunday. Well, it's not morning, but I usually jump on about noon. 
And I've eaten breakfast and done some things, but I still haven't gotten dressed yet. So right. I would only feel comfortable in some pajamas. So I'm going to find some really good ones. So that's going to be really exciting. And, and I, Oh, God, I'm so excited. I've been wanting to do a, uh, a live production of the show for a while. And just the synchronicity with Andrew showing up, it's going to be really cool. Oh, it's going to be so awesome. Um, also, don't forget about our ransom, speaking of Andrew Lehman, for our readings of The Temple and The Hound. That's right. The Hound read by Anthony Tedesco. And that's in support of the Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2. Put up by Self-Made Hero, it's going to hit stores in, in March. In March. And again, right. both Chad and I have adaptations we've done of those particular stories. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're really cool. I also want to thank Andrew Lieben for doing our readings for this particular story. Uh, we yes. haven't heard him yet and this episode, but he will be jumping in here pretty soon. He will be here to save us very shortly. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank Reber Clark, as always, for uh, donating music to the show he gave me some cool didgeridoos and australian instruments to to use under the readings as well because so much of the story takes place in western australia yep. in the desert there somebody had uh, written in and actually looked up the exact coordinates in the desert where the city is found on google earth mm-hmm. on the satellite and it is a beautiful piece of desert you can completely understand that there might be some subterranean city there so it's pretty cool we should put up some uh, <laughs> yeah a, a link to the the photo and uh in the show notes. But but where were we? What was going on in the story? Well, um, our protagonist, Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, uh-huh. had an episode where he sort of had amnesia for about five years. When he came to, or came back to remembering everything, he was doing all this crazy stuff in the five-year period. He was checking out cults, reading books, traveling all over the world. And now the Peasley from the past, who remembers what's going on, is slowly piecing together what happened over those five years. We're in the second chapter of The Shadow Out of Time, and we know that he had that amnesia. Mm-hmm. Now he's trying to return to work, back to his old self. Uh, it's not going so well because he keeps having these dreams. The dreams, yeah. About things that happened when he was an amnesiac. Yeah. And it, it's his conception of time is all thrown off. For example, in 1914, when the war comes, World War One, he has these impressions as if he remembers it even though it's happening in the present. Mm -hmm. He remembers the consequences of the war. He remembers them, even though it's just beginning, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a neat detail. And then he also makes reference to Albert Einstein, he said, was rapidly reducing time to the status of a mere dimension. Mm. It's so cool how Lovecraft is thinking about these kinds of things. Yeah, these are cool little tidbits that that Lovecraft puts in there that really give this story its own mark. Because a lot of this is similar to, when we talked about this last week, um, Mountains of Madness, where there's this ancient alien civilization that lived on Earth. But this kind of stuff is really where I feel like he's tying in a lot of his other cool, trippy stuff. You know, like sort of the out of the aeons and and those types of things. Like his whole body of work is kind of getting filtered into this piece. And it's really neat to see that. Is time travel possible? I, I don't know. Some people theorize that it is possible, and I, I don't know if those theories have been recently disproven or not, but I know that there was talk that that you could only time travel, theoretically speaking, is if you build a machine and you can then only go back in time to when the machine was built. I thought that if it was possible, you could only go into the future. Like, you could slow your metabolic rate down enough through fast as light speed so that you could visit a future. You know, it's not like you're shooting forward in a time. You you would just not age. Yeah, you're slowing down your time because the faster you go, you slow down. Everything slows down, not just, I mean, on an atomic level. 
stuff mm. slows down. They, I mean, they've tested this even like going in jet planes at, at high speeds. They have atomic clocks, and then the faster you go, your your time will go slower. So you can do that. That's for sure. That's definitely possible. That you. But can going go. into the past, going to the past, it. supposedly it is possible. If you build this machine, you once the machine is built, you can go from any point in the future where the machine is built back to the time once that machine is up and running. But that's the only way, theoretically, that it can be done. Why that limit? Because you need to have a machine on both ends of oh, of oh. the travel. Like there has to be a thing to throw you and a thing to catch you. So if there's nothing to yeah. catch you, you don't. It doesn't work. So there's a correlating of contents thing <laughs> going on in this second <laughs> chapter. You know, somehow, whereas in Cthulhu it was all in support of a theory, yet separated by a few narratives, mm-hmm. these cases that he's correlating here are backing up what's happening to him personally. Right. And I... I find that to be much more effective. I think the story is better than Mountains of Madness and Cthulhu because this guy lost a few years of his life and he's trying to sort it out. It's different than sorting out all of these things that have happened to different people. Mm -hmm. It's like having a set of symptoms that are very specific and then going online and reading about other people who have the same set of symptoms. Yeah. And then finding out they all wound up with a horrible disease. You know, oh no, I thought I was just a hypochondriac as it turns out I have this rare form of lupus or something. You know what I mean? Because he does start going back through bits of ancient folklore and, and things that have happened to other amnesiacs and seeing that they have had related experiences to his. Yeah, yeah. The people that were somewhat scientific or artistic or special in some way were having mm-hmm. whole chunks of their lives where they seemed like they became somebody else and then they went back to the way they were before. He's like, wow, that's exactly the type of thing that happened to me. And then there's people who were of of largely mediocre mind or less, guys like you or me, who uh, for a second they would be fired with alien force. Yeah. Like somebody jumped into their head and then there would be a backward lapse and then suddenly they'd be back to themselves. The quote here I liked it is, had had something been groping blindly through time for some unsuspected abyss in nature? (laughs) I like that. He read, you know, he writes this stuff, and it makes sense while you're reading it. But if you ever think about what he's saying, it, it really doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. No, unglimpsed of horrors and dark abysses of thought. It sounds so good. I eat it up oh. with a spoon. He he he's having these dreams. <laughs> As usual, we're way off track. He's having these dreams about things that might have happened to him while he was an amnesiac. Mm-hmm. And there's one image that haunts him over and over of a certain kind of room or building. Mm -hmm. It says, The glimpses themselves were at first merely strange rather than horrible. I would seem to be in an enormous vaulted chamber whose lofty stone groinings were well-nigh lost in the shadows overhead. In whatever time or place the scene might be, the principle of the arch was known as fully and used as extensively as by the Romans. There were colossal round windows and high arched doors and pedestals or tables each as tall as the height of an ordinary room. Vast shelves of dark wood lined the walls, holding what seemed to be volumes of immense size with strange hieroglyphs on their backs. The exposed stonework held curious carvings, always in curvilinear mathematical designs, and there were chiseled inscriptions in the same characters that the huge books bore. The dark granite masonry was of a monstrous megalithic type, with lines of convex-topped blocks fitting the concave bottom courses which rested upon them. Huh. Now, now this is something that sort of bothered me when I read this, because I, 
I've been reading this over again, is that he talks about these things being large. However, his perspective of them, it shouldn't, they shouldn't be gigantic to him. Because he's in the alien body. Spoiler, he's not in a human body, so everything should be proportioned to the body that he's in. They wouldn't seem large to him because he would be just as tall as they were. Well, this is a, a problem with the story that the big italicized conclusion is that there's something in his own handwriting, right? Yeah. But when he's writing in this alien body, he's actually using tentacles on an orb, something that is wholly unlike a hand. Right. I mean, he's in a different body, so would his handwriting be the same? Yeah. That's another thing that, that also made me go, if you're writing with tentacles out of your head, which I believe is what he's, he's writing with, yeah, would it look like your handwriting? Well, I don't know. so it's either stupid or it actually speaks to how you would handle being put into another body, which we can't possibly know. No. But would it be like when you lose an arm and you have that phantom itching? Right. Do you have a similar kind of thing when you're in the other body where even though he's in this giant cone-shaped body where the proportions are correct, would he still perceive everything as being large because he's processing it from this human mind? The same way that even though he writes the stuff with tentacles, he probably has to reach into that part of his brain that says, this is your hand. So the handwriting might be the same because he's working the same yeah, for sure. Muscles. Am I am I making sense? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That part I accept. I just go, you know what? He has the same handwriting because his brain still works in the same way. And right. I mean, maybe it's slightly different. Let's let's talk a little bit about the things he's dreaming about. We don't need to spend too much time on it. Right. It's basically the same kind of Lovecraft thing where it's these huge, endless leagues of giant buildings. He feels like he's an alien body. There's crazy uh, cyclopean corridors of stone, and, and he's kind of floating around in some of them. Yes. He's in an elevator tube where there's no need of an elevator. Yeah, and there's no stairs. Uh, there's only ramps that go from room to room. He feels as though he's some kind of prisoner, and there's hieroglyphics all around, and the, there are these weird hieroglyphs that nobody's ever seen before. And there's these dark cylindrical towers yeah. that seem to bother yeah, him. Yeah, it doesn't know why, but there's something that's really creepy about them. And there's these strange gardens with crazy mush, giant mushrooms. It's a it's a crazy cityscape. But this second chapter has a great concluding sentence where he says, uh, and once I saw the sea, a boundless, steamy expanse beyond the colossal stone piers of an enormous town of domes and arches. Great shapeless suggestions of shadow moved over it, and here and there its surface was vexed with anomalous spouting. It's such a cool, creepy... Yeah. There's giant monsters in there, and he never even got to see what that was about. Yeah, <laughs> that was never a part of his his visitation in the past. And there's ruins too, as well. Yeah. So there was some older civilization that was there before that, and that ends the, the second chapter. So it moves right. us into the third. And in the third is when he's basically saying, "My dreams were so unfailingly about the same things, and they seem to have the aspect of memory." Yeah. These weren't just crazy dreams, but he does a very good job of rationalizing all of this to himself. He says, you know, while I was in the second personality, I read a lot of myth. I was studying a lot of records. Mm-hmm. I read Una Spricklick and Colton. And he goes back and he reads these things as a sane person. There's some, Well, there's some interesting things about that. Like when he goes to read that, he finds that the that there is markings in, in the book. Oh, right. Some, like corrections have been made in, in German. And there's also um, some weird... And he's the one who did it. Yes. The, the librarian says, oh, yeah, you were the guy that wrote in those books. Like, what? I, I was the guy. So he was here before, and he's the one that made all these corrections in uh, the Sprickling Colton book. He's starting to learn the mythological foundation of the dreams that he's been having. Yeah. 
there's a paragraph here that, that kind of sets it all up where it says, Primal myth and modern delusion joined in their assumption that mankind is only one, perhaps the least, of the highly evolved and dominant races of this planet's long and largely unknown career. Things of inconceivable shape, they implied, had reared towers to the sky and delved into every secret of nature before the first amphibian forebear of man had crawled out of the hot sea 300 million years ago. Some had come down from the stars. A few were as old as the cosmos itself. Others had arisen swiftly from terrene germs as far behind the first germs of our life cycle as those germs are behind ourselves. Spans of thousands of millions of years and linkages with other galaxies and universes were freely spoken of. Indeed, there was no such thing as time in its humanly accepted sense. So he's starting to get an inkling of this greatest race of all. Now, this is something we haven't mentioned this, but he recognizes that this is in the past. This is, he thinks, in either the Paleozoic or Mesozoic era. The greatest race of all. So tempting to make like a Whitney Houston joke or something. Too soon, Pfeiffer. <laughs> the reason they're the greatest race of all is because they mastered time travel. And space, as well. Yeah. Before they were on other planets, before they came to Earth. And then they're going to move on again through time. And meanwhile, the great race itself waxed well-nigh omniscient and turned to the task of setting up exchanges with the minds of other planets and of exploring their pasts and futures. It sought likewise to fathom the past years and origin of that black, eon-dead orb in far space whence its own mental heritage had come, for the mind of the great race was older than its bodily form. The beings of a dying elder world, wise with the ultimate secrets, had looked ahead for a new world and species wherein they might have long life, and had sent their minds en masse into that future race best adapted to house them the cone-shaped things that peopled our Earth a billion years ago. Thus, the great race came to be, while the myriad minds sent backward were left to die in the horror of strange shapes. Later, the race would again face death, yet would live through another forward migration of its best minds into the bodies of others who had a longer physical span ahead of them. As I was reading this, I didn't think about it too much until I finished the whole story and then I kind of went back and was going over it and realized what jerks these guys are. Oh yeah. It says that the great race, their members are these big rugos cones, ten feet high, mm -hmm. with the head and other organs. Uh, we know the description and we showed the cover of Astounding Stories in yeah. our show notes, show notes from last week. But that's not actually what they are. They're from another planet and when they were doomed to extinction... They cast their minds forward into these other bodies. Now, the unfortunate denizens of those bodies got switched into their old alien bodies, and they died. They had a mass extinction. Yeah. So these guys are genocidal assholes. I mean, they're... <laughs> and they plan to do it again. Yeah. Because when they when their Rugos-coned bodies become threatened by the... We're going to have a discussion about whatever the heck that is under the pit. Then they cast themselves forward again and take over these beetle men that live in the future past men. And so I, the assumption is all those beetle men get cast back into these bodies and get eaten by Shoggoths or whatever. I mean, they just yeah. are ruining entire civilizations of people. Right. Hey, wait, hold on. Do, do, do you know, um, there's a quote from the biologist J.S.B. Haldane. He was an evolutionary biologist who did a lot of stuff in the in the 20s, 30s, 40s. There's a quote of his that I like a lot, which says, um, he, you know, he said that if biology had taught him anything about the nature of the creator, 
that he had an inordinate fondness for beetles. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, the reason why he says that is because on, on Earth right now, there's about 5,600 different species of mammals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of beetles, there are 400,000 different species. Isn't that crazy? That was a really cool quote, man. Yeah, yeah. By the way, in the in the last episode, we talked about Swami Shandaputra. That was some wishful thinking, but I do understand that it's quite possible that that was another Yithian. Yes. That was helping him out. Absolutely. But also in this second chapter, it says um, in the Necronomicon, there's a hint that there's a cult among human beings who give help to the Yithians who are voyaging through the Aeons. Right. So it could have been a cult member who didn't have any supernatural thing going on at all right yeah but i really hope it was randolph yeah i really yeah i just that it's way cooler to have the swami chandra putra in there yeah back to the second chapter there's a bunch there's other weird cool things that i i was they they have airships that they fly around in and they have Mm. huge boat-like atomic engine vehicles that transverse the great roads yeah so it, it wasn't just like there was this small city and then they all lived in there was like bunches of cities there was a whole crazy big civilization that had boat-like atomic engine vehicles well yeah <laughs> but uh, also he he got to the point where he would be able to walk around and interact with with these creatures and we can basically sum up what's going on in this chapter by saying he starts to rationalize away the things that are happening to him mm-hmm. but of course he's not because of that amnesia he can't do political economy anymore or whatever no whatever his instructorship was but he's been studying this stuff in his own case enough that he's actually become quite adept at psychology and i think that in 22 he accepts an instructorship in psychology at yeah Miskatonic. yeah Miskatonic. <laughs> yeah his son same kind of thing i think that they're studying alongside each other so it's one of those great it's kind of like back to school with rodney dangerfield it is kind of like back to school because right? his son is is working there with him as well and they're studying yeah. this stuff so yeah lovecraft wrote stories that are the foundation of most modern horror and sci-fi he also wrote a story that is the foundation of the triple indie <laughs> all right we're into chapter four the real horror began in may 1915 when i first saw the living things this was before my studies had taught me what in view of the myths and case histories to expect As mental barriers wore down, I beheld great masses of thin vapor in various parts of the building and in the streets below. These steadily grew more solid and distinct, till at last I could trace their monstrous outlines with uncomfortable ease. They seemed to be enormous iridescent cones about ten feet high and ten feet wide at the base and made up of some ridgy, scaly, semi-elastic matter. From their apexes projected four flexible, cylindrical members, each a foot thick and of a ridgy substance like that of the cones themselves. These members were sometimes contracted almost to nothing and sometimes extended to any distance up to about ten feet. Terminating two of them were enormous claws or nippers. At the end of a third were four red, trumpet-like appendages. The fourth terminated in an irregular yellowish globe, some two feet in diameter and having three great dark eyes ranged along its central circumference. Surmounting this head were four slender gray stalks bearing flower-like appendages, whilst from its nether side dangled eight greenish antennae, or tentacles. The great base of the central cone was fringed with a rubbery gray substance which moved the whole entity through expansion and contraction. So right away in chapter four, we get a great description of these aliens. 
one of the things that we didn't mention about the last chapter is he would have these weird panic attacks where he would look down at his body just to make sure. Yeah, and then kind of wake up, right? And then kind of wake up and he would look at his body and go, oh, okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. But what happens here is in one of his dreams, he actually looks down at his body and he sees that he has a cone-shaped body and it's rugose and, and scaly and all, and all that stuff. And he woke up screaming and it freaked him out. He thinks he's dreaming, but he's actually remembering. The personality switching, if you just spend some time thinking about it, mm-hmm. is horrible. Because when I have dreams, I'm still myself in my dream. It's, yeah. I don't take on other personalities. That would really disturb me if I looked down in a dream and I was another creature of a different height and body. You know, if I was, say, John Travolta from Face Off. <laughs> that would be very horrific. <laughs> but but it is, it, it's pretty crazy. No, it is, it is. And the lack of control that you have. But he does, in a sense, he does have some control. I mean, this is what he talks about now at this point in the story, that they sort of let him be off on his own and he starts interacting with all of these other creatures that are in these bodies, but they're from different places. Because this is Lovecraft giving props to all of his buddies. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Well, he says first, um, he talks, there was some of the earthly minds uh, were from some winged, star-headed, half-vegetable race of, of Antarctica which is Mountains of Madness. And then he talks about um, uh, one of the reptile people of fabled Volusia, which is from Robert E. Howard's uh, The Shadow Kingdom, which is also the serpent people for people that play the role-playing game. And then the the furry, pre-human, hyperborean worshippers of Sothagua. And then Sothagua was a creation of Clark Ashton Smith from Mm -hmm. the tale of uh, Sodom Prazeros. I don't know that story. And the abominable (laughs) Chochos, which was August Durleth, and that was from The Thing That Walked in the Wind. So this whole section, he's kind of given props to his buddies. That's really cool. I, well, So the great race has exchanged personalities with people from the past and from the future of human history. Mm-hmm. Aside from these aliens, he's getting to meet all sorts of people from history and uh, from the future. Now, a lot more time is spent on the people from history, right. and you kind of get this impression that it's like a profile that Lovecraft put together of uh, people he wish he wishes he could meet. There was some Roman guy named Titus... Um, there's an Egyptian dude from the 14th dynasty that knows about Nyarlathotep. Right. And there's some some guy f- from Suffolk in Cor- Cromwell's day. Yeah. And an astronomer from uh, pre-Incan Peru. And there was definitely one thing that I don't need to have been well read to understand, which was Krom Yah, a Sumerian chieftain. Krom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a Conan thing. Krom. Krom. Oh, I love Krom. He's a Sumerian. Yeah. No, no. Th- that. That Kram Yah, a Sumerian chieftain, Conan was a Sumerian. Yeah. So he, this guy might be related to Conan. This character was talking to a guy that was related to Conan. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. It's very exciting to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot in this section about the great races, habits, and social life, and political structure that is a good foundation for discussion of maybe what Lovecraft is feeling at this time in the 30s, uh, what his inclinations might have been and how that changed and that sort of thing. I don't think we have time to talk about it right no. now. Next week. Next week we're going to jump on that. Yeah, and we and we should spend some time on it. I, I feel bad that we kind of meandered a little bit again this time. But, we did. Uh, we did meander a little bit. We talked about a, a few a few things that were off topic, but um, we just want this podcast to last longer. Yeah, it would be nice. Yeah, if we if we if we speed through the story, that means that we're going to be that much closer to the end of Lovecraft. So, and we are going to you know do some stuff past this. Yes, but it's such a course. fun time, and uh, the only thing that keeps me going, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I mean, I've noticed on our forums, which you can uh-huh. get to from our website, there's people have been talking about uh, this particular show, and and the comments have been generally good. People like our little tangents, so good. Well, I'm glad that we could. Uh, if if you hate our tangents, go on the forums or make some comments and just say, guys, stick to the story. We're enough of you and your yeah. quantum leap. <laughs> Diggy says, <laughs> if you don't get in there and kiss Marilyn Monroe, the car's gonna explode and kill twenty dozen people. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. All right, man. Well, I've had fun talking to you about this. There's more to come, and it's a good story, and uh, we're giving you plenty of time to read it. Yes. Get out (laughs) and read it. Get out and read it. So go on to hplovecraft.com and read it, though. Read the real one. Read the uh, corrected one. Yes. Or uh, I think there's a Joshi edition. Yes, there's a corrected Joshi edition that you can pick up as well. Thanks, everybody, and uh, thanks to Reber Clark for providing some music for us this week, uh, as he will continue to do. Thanks to who who read for us this time? It's a familiar voice. Familiar. The guy that read for it. Let me look. It's uh, Andrew Lehman. Andrew Lehman, yeah. I knew it was Andrew Lehman something. And Andrew, what? No, it's not just, it's Andrew (laughs) Lehman. That's all it is. Um, also, to mention, um, Andrew Lehman is doing the reading for our Ransom story, one of them, and the other Ransom story, Anthony Tedesco, which is the Hound. Uh, please donate if you can, and as soon as we get $2,000, we will release those onto the suspecting, not unsuspecting, everybody's suspecting yeah. them because we've been announcing it for a while, the suspecting right. <laughs> audience. Also, Mike Mann was going to be on with us this week, our web group. Yeah, he'll be on with us next week. And also, I want everybody that's going to be in the north of England on April 4th, it's a Wednesday night, to save the date, get up here and be with Chad and Andrew and myself in person and be a part of the show. This is, I'm so excited about this. It's going to be so cool. We'll have more details as the weeks go on, but uh, we're going to be doing it in style and leads and it's going to be great. Save, Save the day, save the day. And with that... I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah! A race of adorable puppy dogs. They <laughs> <laughs> just wanted love and attention. That's all they wanted. <laughs> okay. The real horror. The real horror.